0: Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories. I'm your host, Glenn Broggett. On this edition of the program, we are going to look back at the life and career of Mr. Brian Pillman, a brilliant, controversial, complicated type of man who entertained and enthralled pro wrestling fans the world over in his much too short of a life. Recently, a book about the life of Brian Pillman titled Crazy Like a Fox, the Definitive Chronicle of Brian Pillman, 20 years later, was put together and released by our guest today, uh, author Liam O'Rourke, uh, th- I want to thank you, Liam, for joining us today to talk about your book about one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, uh, Brian Pillman, and this is actually our first international Wrestling Memories episode, so thank you so much for uh, being with us today.
1: No, no, honestly, Glenn, it's my pleasure, and uh, I feel quite, uh, quite honored to be uh, the first international. I didn't know that, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk to Pillman, and uh, yeah, it's uh, this has been a lot of fun to put together, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you today.
0: Yeah, you know, first and foremost, before we uh, we talk about the life of Brian, uh, I, I I want those listening uh, right now to learn a little bit more about the author, the man who put this wonderful book together. And can you get the listeners uh, here uh, listening to Wrestling Memories today a little bit uh, about you yourself, your background, and just some general info? Uh, you know, and reg- and then also in regards to uh, uh, how you ended up with the Brian Pillman project. But first, let's get to know you first.
1: Okay, sure. Well, uh, my my background, lifelong wrestling fan, as many are. Um, and I actually trained to wrestle in the FWA Academy in Portsmouth in about 2002. And, uh, during that period of, you know, trying to learn how to wrestle, obviously, like most kind of students, I was kind of keen to, you know, watch tapes of the certain guys I always liked and other guys I thought were great. The Shawn Michaels, the Bret Hart's, the Rick Flairs, the you know, Jumbo Sarutas and Kenta Kabashis mm-hmm. and guys like that but who I always thought were really good. And for whatever reason, I always kind of put Brian in that same bracket, even though I didn't see him necessarily in the ring at the same level as some of those guys. But there was always just an intangible about Brian. For whatever reason, I always kind of grouped him in with that. Um, years later, when I, uh, I kind of veer away from the athletic side of wrestling and, and you know, get a degree in journalism at the University of Wolverhampton, uh, I ended up writing for medical journals just by chance. Uh, and then from there, it was just—it was probably about a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, again, I've always been a, a Pillman obsessive, anyway. And uh, and like I said, ever since I got into wrestling on a smaller level here myself, it was just one of those things where I just you know, people who had that intangible quality—I was always—you know—you can know, like kind of it sucks in; it draws you to them. And Pillman was rare in the sense that he had that innate quality, but unlike many, he didn't get what he probably should have got. Even though he's kind of the ultimate enigma to me in the sense of he's a guy who's considered a massive overachiever, but at the same time, you kind of look at him and think, you know what? They should, they could have done so much more. And if circumstances were different, Brian would have done so much more. And, uh, and that was really kind of the, yeah, the, the background behind myself yeah, and, and, and Brian. And it was just one of those things where, you know, the WWE did their DVD in 2006 and it was, by their standards, a pretty good piece. But at the same time, I, 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 because I'd researched Brian's life in, in great detail, just my own kind of personal either enjoyment or interest or whatever, I, I looked at that DVD and I knew that it was only about 30% of the story at best. And, and they did a good job of bringing in the people to talk on the thing, but they just didn't tell the story. And to me, it's like it, there was a general knowledge of Brian Tillman's Story, you know, I think that it's not a thing where you know, he's an unknown kind of individual, but at the same time, I knew that there was so much more to the story that really gives you a full picture of Brian than has actually ever been compiled, and, and that was really kind of the yeah. That about two or three years ago, I watched it one more time that DVD, and I, you know, I was talking to my brother about. It. I was like, God, you know, I really wish that the, the proper story was compiled by somebody. And he just kind of looked at me and just said, well, you know, you're a writer, why don't you do it? You know, it's almost like a, yeah, kind of like a, you know, testing me and playing chicken kind of a thing. And like,
0: a, a bit of a dare, know,
1: at,
0: a, a bit of a dare then yeah. for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, why don't you do it big, math? you think it's so easy to do? And it's like, well, you know, kind of, you know, I kind of brushed off. But I just, you know, it just stuck with me in my head of, you know what? I think that if I can get in touch with the right people, I think that if I can do just a little, you know, push things a little bit further on the research front, I think that it's doable. I think it's doable, not only do I think it's doable, but I think it could be phenomenal because, like I say, the story's there with Brian. It's just a matter of tapping into it, talking to the right people, getting the right perspectives, and finally putting together what, what I think is one of the most fascinating stories in the history of the business.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a, a story that's uh, it gets overlooked because you know when Brian passed away. What, some of the stuff that Brian was doing in Ring, I think, was the the ultimate template for uh, what became the what the WWE's lifeblood was for the next couple of years. That really transformed them and in, back into that that mainstream type of uh, Hulk Hogan back in the day, breaking mainstream type of audiences where you've got the cool anti heroes, you've got these guys that have so many shades of gray, you don't know at what, uh, what side of the fence they're on. And with Brian, he brought such a great mystery to it early on, and with With his untimely passing, I think we really genuinely as wrestling fans were were, were cheated to what was to come. And, and, you know, that and combined with just the bad luck and the injuries, you know, he was a man with such big ideas. But I think the ideas really uh, put too many miles on his body and also later on, ultimately, his inner psyche.
1: Yeah, and that's, and that's really one of, the, the, kind of the, the things I really wanted to explore in the book is, is the inner psyche element. So, you know, a lot of people know that he had that homebrew back in 1996, but it was like a slow degeneration that was actually happening to him over the course of, of a number of years. And, and like you say, it is sad because it's one of the, you know, one of the, kind of the tragic hallmarks of Brian's life. And, and this happened in football and in wrestling, is that he would find, yeah, even though he wasn't considered somebody who would be given a spot, He would. He was enough of a student. He was enough of a scholar. Even about a business like wrestling, that he he didn't grow up loving. It wasn't his dream to be a wrestler, like a lot of like it is with a lot of guys. But he was somebody who through study and analysis and thinking could find a spot. He could see. He could navigate kind of the landscape, and he could see that you know what this is where I can fit in. You know, in the early the late 80s, early 90s, it was a high flyer because there wasn't as much of that going on. And obviously, this is a prelude to what you just mentioned. But again, you know, even in the early 90s, there's a lot of stuff that he was kind of encouraging. You know, would we have a cruiserweight division today? Yeah, you know, whatever that's worth in the WWE. But would we have it if it wasn't for the fact that Pillman championed for it in 91 in WCW? You know, and again, like you say, in 96, when he really kind of, I think, becomes the most fully formed version of himself he ever was as the loose cannon. I mean, that year, you know, what came afterwards? Was kind of a, a direct derivative of what Brian was doing because even though there were, there were trace elements of what Brian was doing elsewhere, he was the first one that brought it to the big two. You know, he did that stuff first in WCW before anybody did, and it was almost like the litmus test. You know, ECW was doing a lot of kind of you know, insider stuff, but no one else was doing it, and it was only when Brian did it that first time they got such a big reaction and became the talk of the business. that <laughs> you know, you know, Vince and Bischoff they said okay it worked there it can work here and in some cases it didn't work but in some cases it did and like you say that the anti-hero elements that ended up bleeding with the success of Steve Austin um, you know the NWO which it, again that's kind of a, a unique thing and it's not a direct comparison but certainly touching on elements of real life was something that was, was, was not exactly seen in WCW before Pillman because you had the Dungeon of Doom at the time, which was kind of the the top act in their direction and their vision for what wrestling should be in the 90s. And the WWF, again, eventually they ended up just pitching on real life an awful lot and having a hell of a lot of success.
0: And the thing was, when you look at you compared to things at the time, you know, now watching it with the benefit of hindsight, you want look at the NWO stuff of say '96 when when it started to explode, it became that that phenomenon. But you know, when you compare the stuff to what Brian was starting to incubate and what he started to get cooking uh, in '95 after he got rid of that horrid uh, California Brian gimmick and got to go back to being his his, 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 his true heel self and building up in these big moments that, uh, again, we were talking about it. It's the foundation of the, the attitude era. But when you watch the two together, some of Pillman stuff compared to some of the NWO stuff, I mean, it's, kind of like the the cool mom and, you know, the cool dad versus the uh, the meddling, uh, you know, younger uncle that wants to, uh, you, you know, take his spot and take his uh, little spot, or should I say little brother to these guys <laughs> that that had a little bit more energy and had a little bit more of the thought process because with Brian, man, this was so much not just, you know, what I look like and, you know, what my, my image and my gimmick is. It was a lot of things that he did through the years that started, even when he uh, first- Got into the idea of, uh, you know, getting into the pro wrestling business with Kim Woods, uh, you know, talking about getting into the business that he put together a lot of stuff. He did a lot of research. He really learned how to mine the con and the grift as far as pro wrestling goes from a myriad of different sources. And that's what really made him kind of unique because he took things. He in, well, took influences and kind of redistributed them to a different generation or to an audience that wouldn't have read a book about something in that scenario.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and again, and that's it's that first for knowledge that I don't know. I mean, to a degree, it exists now, but not in as aggressive a manner. And it certainly didn't. It certainly didn't manifest itself in the same way back then with many other guys. I mean, a lot of the. I mean, you look at the guys now, and you get a sense. And this isn't to knock the current landscape by any means, but you get a sense that when a you know, a talent today kind of fleshes out who they are, they, they are what they are, and they stay that way. And they don't kind of look for the openings. They don't really modify what they're doing. They don't tweak it too much. They kind of they stay as they are because there's so there's so little control in the environment now that that kind of dictates it. Whereas with Brian, you know, and in the 90s, Fashion was far more Wild West because you know both companies were kind of looking for the thing that was going to push them ahead. You know, there wasn't a lot of great success in the early 90s uh, in, in the world of American wrestling because. Yeah, The WDF was looking for the thing that was going to get them back, and WCW was looking for the thing that was going to get them you know, on, on, on the map to begin with. And like you say there, that, that thing about Brian being kind of smart to the car and smart to the grift, which obviously ends up playing into his story big time with, with the loose cannon, but it goes back to, again, I think with Brian, I think it was the just the introduction to the business in the sense that he wasn't a guy that was smartened up once he got in. He wasn't somebody that you know, grew up all his life wanting to be a wrestler. He was somebody who was pointed towards it because they felt he'd be perfect for it. And he was smartened up by an outsider, by someone who really knew what they were talking about, and Kim Wood, who, again, not in the business, but the people that I spoke to who are in the business, they all revered Kim Wood's opinion. But when I would quote Kim Wood or I would mention his name, people were so quick to validate what Kim would your Kim's attitude and Kim's mentality, and more than one person in this book said that he was one of the most brilliant people they'd ever spoken to, and so as a result, you kind of look at the way Pillman pursued knowledge, and again, it's 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 being associated with Kim Wood, who himself is smart to the Khan in football and in wrestling, you know, and again, that 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 persistent desire to gather knowledge and information led to him encountering like the, the smartest minds he possibly could to hoard as much knowledge as he could. And in the end, you end up paying off several times. And and again, the the kind of the great sadness of Brian, what makes his story unique, is that he would find a way to succeed again and again, but something would, would happen and just squash it under the thumb, rightly or wrongly, justified or not.
0: And what happened really, too, with him as far as his football career, we want to go back into that because, I mean, we just talked a little bit about Kim Wood, who was a strength and conditioning coach in the NFL and for other outlets. But I want to go a little bit further back, uh, you know, into his younger years. I mean, Brian... Grew up, uh, he grew up and he was born an underdog in life, is, is you know, and I think that's a good way to put it because when yeah. Brian was born, not only did he have to deal with these multiple surgeries for this throat cancer, he also uh, really lost a key part of what could have been a, a real driving force in his life with the uh, young, untimely death of his father. So, and that makes it all the, the more sad because when we get to the end of Brian's story, Brian also uh, did not get to uh, see his 40s, did not. Not get to see his kids fully grow up so there's a lot of parallels yeah. too between that and you know and as well as brian just being such a resilient tough person Yes, like even as off the womb he came and you know battling just so much in his uh young life
1: yeah i mean you had to be because to be quite honest when you look at um, yeah again this is one of those things that makes me want to you know, write the book and, and, lo- and love talking about this is everybody knows yeah brian had a ton of throat surgeries but I mean, he nearly died several times you know, when, before he was even like four or five years old. I mean, you know, there, was, you know, there was one day, it's called about in the book, where his heart stops three times in one day, and the doctor just, you know, and he, it's like he, he should not have made it anywhere really past his fifth birthday. Um, it, it was a very, very tough upbringing. And it's one of those two where you kind of, you don't want to play, I didn't, I didn't go through it too much in the book because I don't want to play amateur psychologist, but it is one of those things where you kind of, See Brian's, you know, formative years. No father, stra you know, literally just kind of stuck in hospital, not getting to enjoy the kind of the, the life of you know, of a normal child. And when he finally gets out and he finally can do that, he gravitates towards worlds where you basically don't have to live with real world adult pressures like you know the, the normal worries you would have about you know making you know making the payment on the house this month or worrying about this. He he, he gravitated towards. frankly, kind of immature, um, responsibility-less, in a sense, uh, industries in football and wrestling, because I got some great feedback, again, from Alex Marvez, who's a very well-renowned NFL writer, and Kim Woods, like you say, um, a couple of the people I spoke to, who basically just kind of emphasized that point, that how at that point, you know, when you're college third as a football player, you don't, you know, everybody's catering to you because they want you and they need you more than you need them. And that's a unique position to be in for a kid like Brian, who, again, didn't grow up in the easiest surroundings. And then like, you know, he he's finally makes it to the Bengals. He's a star there. And you know, the NFL, as it was at that time, wasn't a place where you had to be mature and, 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 and responsible. And, then, of course, when that finally ends, the natural segue is wrestling, where, again, like we said before, those two words I mentioned, Wild West. I mean, in the eighties and nineties, I mean, the stories are in the book about what was going on in Calgary, the things that he ended up doing in in WCW, and just you know, ridiculous, ridiculous stories. And it's like, what kind of industry do do you hear about this kind of stuff in? And it's you know, but it's wrestling, and that's what Brian gravitated to.
0: So it's kind of like the right amount of athleticism with the right amount of this, this storytelling and uh, what they refer to as the wrestler psychology of both what you do in the ring and how you put a match together, as well as how you kind of put your career together. And, you know, Brian, I just the, the reading about, you know, getting how those throat issues were, you know, so young he had to battle it, you know, into his school, grade school years. But the thing was, he just didn't let that down, hold him back. It seemed like it only lit a fire in his under his ass because you know football was just another way of expressing himself. I think as well as uh, cutting out, like you mentioned, cutting out some of that pent up stuff that he had. You know, of being an underdog. Whether it was in high school where he was playing positions that were meant for in college, he was playing positions that were meant for guys that were uh, you know much much heavier, much bigger, much you know muscle, you know the musculature, all of that. But for Brian, Ryan, he was in great shape, but he just didn't have the size. But what he did was he went out and he, he just would not listen. He would not listen to any of that stuff. He went out and proved himself time and time again, sometimes at the sake of his own body. He made it time and time again on the field, whether he was in college or, you know, football, you know, whether high school or even the pros. But that, that got noticed. And, and for a while, I mean, again, he worked so, so hard. But I think it was a point where you know he's that little guy. I mean, he's got that alpha sense, but that you know the beta body.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was really something that I wanted to hit on. And like, yeah, he had a very unique toughness. You know, you hear about tough guys in wrestling. You know, there aren't there aren't many guys who are legitimately really like, during that period of time. There's tough guys in wrestling, sure, but there's not a lot of them who are really completely secure in themselves as it was at that point. I and mean, that's the impression I got from a lot of people in and out of the business is that during that period, you know, it was all, it, it was about the bluff and it was about guys like, you know, not to kind of pick on anybody here, but Sid, who you know, who had the size and had the physique, but Brian would always kind of be annoyed about the fact that Sid would get the push because he didn't think that he was a tough guy. He, he thought legitimately, if you take away, you know, the scissors and you take away everything else, from Sid, he's not, you know, he's not winning a fight in Brian's mind. Whereas Brian was legitimately tough, and because he was able—I mean, you mentioned football, but let's get you again, don't forget, ice hockey was his preferred sport when he was younger. And again, he was you know, a fourteen, fifteen-year-old kid playing on a traveling men's hockey team, and these guys were huge. And he was, but he was just fearless. He, he was just absolutely fearless when it came to the way he approached everything. He had confidence in his own toughness because he'd been through so much, and he was able to say that he'd been through so much, and it drove him. And, and that kind of that kind of shows, I think, in his later years, especially during what people would consider his, his athletic prime in wrestling, is that his, his personality. Off screen, his personality off the field is so gregarious and so boisterous in many ways because he had a confidence that most people don't get to have. You know, most people are even if they are tough guys, a lot of people aren't the most secure about you know the, the way that guys you know they always sizing each other up and always trying to figure out you know who, who's the toughest and stuff like that. Whereas Brian was, I mean, he had a swagger to him and he was he was not afraid to tell people what he thought he wasn't afraid to be you know over the top because he he thought you know no matter what I can always handle myself I've been through worse you know there's nothing that people can do to me that I can't get through so uh, I I think that kind of is 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 emblematic in what ends up happening in football and what ends up happening in wrestling in both cases where unfortunately physical situations you mentioned as well is, is a perfect segue Glenn the whole thing about you know, his body kind of being the victim of that mentality. You know, and, and you, know, you talks about it in the book about, you know, the injury he suffers while he's trying to make the Bengals, but he keeps pushing through, he keeps going through it. And of course in wrestling, ultimately his doing was when his career should have been over, he refused to acknowledge that. And he kept going, he kept going and ultimately it cost him his life.
0: Mm-hmm. And he just didn't, you know, settle for, you know, another another point when he got into the NFL, this wasn't one of those things where, you know, Brian did have a great career in Miami of Ohio. He was uh, a second runner up, all, second team, all American. The first, uh, the guy in the first team was uh, William, the refrigerator Perry. So what a contrast in styles and, and just body types. But yet for all of that talent, he wasn't selected in the NFL draft. But again, he's in that underdog position of having the tryout for the team. But again, it was a combination of his great rid his personality. He was good enough to get, land a spot, and this, you know, again with injuries, of course, uh, hampering it. He ended up with a pretty cherry spot, being in around his hometown to be playing with such a herald team like the Cincinnati Bengals. And on and off the field, Brian really did bring in a short time there an interesting element to the team and also to the NFL because not only was Brian playing on this uh, special team suicide squad, he was also uh, enough to cordial and off the field to know and get to know like the owner at the time paul brown and getting to know some of the front office people so he knew how to work a room uh whether it would be uh guys on the field or and even to the front office so they always had a these guys literally did kind of like brian even paul brown going to the point that he would take care of brian if, if the uh, off the field stuff didn't work or on the field stuff well, didn't that's, work that's,
1: yeah yeah no, precisely i mean and Again, that's one of the things I really enjoyed learning about this. Some people have asked me, like, what, what are the things that you learn the most? And one of the things that always comes to mind is learning more and more about Brian's kind of sixth sense that he had about how to read people. I don't know if that was something he was born with or something he developed as a football player, but he just figured out how to speak to people in a way that spoke to them the most. You know, it's like, and it, it came out when I was interviewing people for this book where you know, I would talk to, you know, this guy over here or this guy over here. And they'd be feeding me all these kind of crazy stories about like Brian in fights or Brian with girls. You know, and, you know, of course, they make the book. But then I'll be talking to somebody else or relay the same type of story. And they'll come back and say, you know what? I never saw that side of Brian. He was never that way to me because Brian probably knew that that wouldn't appeal to me. And so, you know, I would have a. I you know, I think it was eventually it was Dave Meltzer who kind of put it best for me when he just said, look, if he had a salacious story, he'd call Mark Madden. If he had, if you want to talk about Lou Fez at four in the morning, he'd call me. And it's like, that's, that's Brian in right there. It's like he, he knew what, what, he was able to read what people were like. He was able to understand what they wanted to talk about, how to approach them. And he was able to kind of, again, just Get, it's about getting over. You know, I think that's kind of one of the, the, the real things in the book that kind of stands out. And it's kind of a life lesson is that a lot of life, you know, in, in terms of professional life and personal life, it's about getting over. You know, it's the, it's the same method. It's not something where you go on the field and you prove yourself necessarily. Brian figured out that, you know what, if you get over off the field or on the field, it will, it will work. It will, you, know, you will be able to reap the benefits from it.
0: Yeah and though his uh you know his career was cu- uh, cut short uh, by you know he was cut by Cincinnati he tried out with Buffalo and then between the time that he ended up in the CFL for a while and then eventually uh started this full-time training he did entertain the uh the idea of getting uh, into involved with training and finding somebody that would train him uh, to get him into the pro wrestling world and again uh, him and Kim Wood uh, they, they, uh, ended up kind of putting their brains together to try to, uh, look at what, uh, territory or what trainers in those territories would be good enough. And, uh, you know, before we get into like the Hart brothers stuff, there was other areas that they were exploring. I, I saw in the book, there was considerations to like maybe a Brad Rangans up here in Minnesota who, uh, has trained yeah. many people and, and, and other guys around. So this was very, another well thought out thing to who, who they would get, to uh, put Brian through the paces and and and, tre- and train him right. And uh, it was very interesting because that was right before he ended up uh, turning uh, over to the CFL and then, of course, his wrestling story would truly take flight.
1: Yeah, and it, I think, again, it's one of those things where you kind of really, uh, I, I really enjoyed that part in terms of getting to write that part, but also just ask questions about that part, that kind of that transition to where, you know, Brian has figured out that the NFL, no matter how hard he tries and no matter, even if he gets in and gets a great spot, he kind of figured out that it wasn't for him. He, he, he knew, I mean, there are certain guys who make the NFL and then get a couple of years. I mean, you know, Kim Kim Wood outright said, Brian was not going to last that long in the NFL. He just, for whatever reason, it's, it's structured in such a way where it'll, chew, it'll pick him up, it'll chew him and spit him out for their own purposes. And he's going to, he's going to get hurt or he's going to, you know, something's going to happen where ultimately he wasn't going to be in the NFL for long. And he didn't really know what else he wanted. You know, he didn't really have it, but all he knew is that he didn't want to change his lifestyle necessarily. He needed something that was going to, to speak to him and appeal to him. And really, again, he, he didn't know that much about wrestling at this point, but Kim did. Kim knew a lot about wrestling. He's a, he's a, you know, a historian. He's a very intelligent person. Uh, and, and he knew the deal and he was, you know, in his mind, because he, you know, he, he was close to Dave Meltzer as well. And was getting the inside scoop on what was going on in pretty much every territory. I mean, he knew, you know, there were certain places that if you go to train, they'll rip you off, they'll con you. There will be, uh, you know, I, am not sure how, how far to take this, but there, there were some kind of a personal proclivities of some of the people who were training those, uh, Training the new guys who, who would not have gelled well with Brian. Let's put it that way. Um, and, and it's just the type of thing where eventually it was, let's figure it out. Where, you know, where's the best place? At the time they weren't thinking Canada because obviously it's was, it was further away and out of sight, out of mind. But yeah, Brad Rankins was the guy because Minnesota at that point, you know, under Vern Garnier had a great reputation for just churning out, you know, top guy after top guy. You know, flare train there, steamboat train there. You know, Rude, Hennig, the LOD, you know, they you go know, tons of guys had, had gone to Minnesota or came from Minnesota uh, that, that were, you know, real top tier players. And it's one of those where I think that Kim realized look, there's a pattern here. Whether it's the, the, the training, whether it's the aptitudes, whatever it is, there's a certain type of training going on in Minnesota that's either it weeds out the weak, which in some cases was certainly the case. Or it just, it, it takes exceptionally driven people to make it. And again, that that's Brian to a T. You know, Kim knew that. You know, Kim didn't know how well Brian was going to take the wrestling. But if, he knew that if the training was going to be tough, which is what everybody said about Minnesota, then Brian was going to be able to get it out and make it. And if anything, he'd see it as a challenge.
0: You're listening to Wrestling Memories. Uh, we're talking with Liam O'Rourke, author of Crazy Like a Fox, the definitive chronicle of Brian Pillman. 20 years later and now we are going to enter into the Calgary uh, Stampede wrestling territory we mentioned Brian uh, ended up in the CFL uh, in, in around the Calgary area with the Stampeders and you want to talk about a town uh, CFL, well, it's it's got a certain uh, cachet in, in Calgary but this is a town that was known for its legendary pro wrestling family, quite obviously Stu, Helen, and the rest of the Hart family and you know what, making the most of a bad situation here was, Brian again, this is just the, a recurring thing that goes out through the book and his life he ended up, I think, with probably the most ideal trainers for him and, his, and what became the style that, that Brian ended up taking on in the business i think the hart brothers like bruce hart keith hart the rest of the guys were in the right place at the right in brian in the right place at the right time let's talk about how brian uh, met up with the hearts and uh ended up in uh, getting involved in training and then eventually hitting uh the ring and wow taking to it like a fish to water
1: yeah so i mean and it's kind of the exception to the rule in brian's life in it if there was any luck that he had it was that he was getting to Stampede at a time when Stampede needed new talent. They needed people who could stand out. Even if they were green, they'd be given a chance. Or even if they weren't the most well-rounded, fleshed-out individuals as, as wrestlers, they, they they get a chance. they get a chance to work with guys who were good because they had you know, uh, you know, a lot of talented individuals there. Um, and it was just that thing where Brian, there's you know, very little in his life that you could say, you know what, he's a lucky guy right there. He, you know, pure luck. But I honestly think you know the fact that he, he was an exceptional athlete in a training camp that didn't have a ton of other exceptional athletes at that exact same time. Um, in terms of beginners, he stood out like a sore thumb. But you know, Bruce took him immediately um, for whatever reason. They just they just clicked. They you know but again both very smart people. Bruce is a really smart guy himself, and he wasn't it wasn't from the way he, he he kind of jumped in, hit the ground running. He hit the ground kind of still trying to find what was going on. But I, I think in one of the One of the defining things about Brian, he got injured very early. But again, he didn't let that. His downtime was not downtime. You know, he put it to good use, and he came back better. And uh, and that's when it was like, wow, look at this, look at this, look at this. This guy's a prospect now. This guy's got some serious potential because whatever it is he's done in his off time, which we talk about in the book, um, he just came back just looking far more ready than he had any right to considering he really hadn't had that many matches I and mean, he didn't even have all that much training I mean he was, he was rushed onto TV six weeks after his first lesson you know, typically it's you know, three months at the earliest and he'll do some house shows and you know, maybe we'll get you in and we can find a spot for you but Brian just you know, leak flogged his way over everybody pretty much and ended up in the top spot and, and, and did really well, you know, he did very very well
0: and he had such charisma instantly i i mean when you, i watched i grew up watching the stampede shows uh, through a, a video uh, through a tv station in winnipeg that were bicycling the tapes from calgary and I, I i watched him when he first came in and i watched his mic skills how they developed as well as he was getting to learning and finding himself in the pro wrestling ring and we talked about he wasn't in for uh, trained for very long he was thrown into the ring but at that time too stampede was trying to reestablish itself in the wake of the mcmahon expansion of course they shut down briefly and had a working deal with Vince and that fell apart so they were trying to find their legs and you know what between Brian and uh, there was a lot of great uh, guys internationally that showed up uh, to work for Stu through the years and that was another period as well with a lot of great imports from Japan a style of which Brian copiously studied films uh, that he would get from Meltzer so this was another thing where guys that he could uh, either work with uh, directly in the ring or glean knowledge uh, in the locker room I think this was another one of those uh, major pluses for Brian because he got to learn a few. I guess his style could vary in Stampede because of that international exchange of talent.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of guys, again, we're talking now 86, 87, the dying embers of the territories around this time. You know, Vince is going national. He's pretty much by 87, by the time WrestleMania 3 comes around, to me, that's the definitive flag in the ground that he's won. You know, they, they, they were, yeah, there were still people who were around after that, but he'd won. And, and and nobody was going to beat him by that point. So all these little territories, I mean, they were kind of fading out, and it was becoming natural selection for the entire business. And a lot of these territories would have a lot of guys who'd, who'd been around for a while. You know, so it's not like Brian wouldn't have learned if he was in other places. But you do wonder, and it's actually kind of an interesting one, where if he'd have just gone to a different territory and maybe just kind of been and, and been treated more normally in the sense of getting at the bottom, you know, kind of like Sean did. Sean Michaels, you know, he, he went to Mid-South, but he's treated like a job guy. You know, and you could see that he was special, but he's treated like a job guy. And then he had have to go elsewhere to, to get a chance. And Brian would have been treated that way. And who knows what would have happened if he'd have come in at that low level. Um, instead, what happened was, by, by coming in at Stampede, you had all these young, hungry guys all getting in at the same time, who really, you know, they had a motor on them. They all were very, very driven. And it was kind of like they all got great by working together. They learned together. Yeah, it wasn't like there was, I mean, there were, there were veteran voices, certainly, but I mean, they all kind of just got really good, really quick, it seemed like, I mean, within like a year and a half, I mean, uh, Brian, when Brian got to WCW, he'd only been in the business three years and he'd been injured for about a year of that, you know, just for various injuries. It's like in two years, he became ready for, for, for national, you know, it's like, that's pretty incredible.
0: Well, oh, it blew me away, you know, because I was watching Stampede and, you know, I, last I saw Brian was he came and worked, uh, I think, one or two shots with Larry Cameron, who was uh, then poised to be their top guy at the end of, uh, before Stampede closed down. And the next thing yeah. I know, you know, he's he's working with Cameron and it's not even a week or two later. I, I, I'm thinking maybe it's a little bit longer with the remembering and all of that. But I remember watching the vignettes uh, for him to cross over into uh, NWA WCW. Now, what really got Brian to make that leap? Uh, you know, he could because at the time, you know, Brian was probably it was having his fill of Stampede. I, I, I think there was some guys that he had did have some heat with out of the li- out of the lineup, and some that he did uh, justifiably rib, you know, with the Bill Kazmaier story. But uh, you know, as as Brian, you know, he found himself in a pretty good spot. I mean, in a spot where. You know, he was going to end up with uh, the NWA WCW, but at the time he was looking around, shopping around, seeing, kind of checking the pulse of of, of some of the other places in even the WWF because Owen was there and Brett was there while Owen was working the Blue Blazer gimmick. He also, I mean, that that was fascinating too, but Continental Wrestling, reading about that near, near big time uh, American side uh, debut for Brian. Uh, that was one of the great big what ifs, as far as because I mean it wasn't soon after that you know after toying with the idea of the WWF Continental Wrestling or even Full Time International that Brian ended up in WCW.
1: Yeah, I mean hey- Heyman loved him. Heyman-, Heyman saw a tape of Stampede and saw. Yeah, I mean he liked a lot of the guys there, but Brian he just saw the potential for this big time you know this big time personality, and I think he really quite early on really liked the idea of Brian as a heel, even in '88. You know, as you know, every turn of 88 to 89, he liked the idea of Brian as a heel. And, and Eddie Gilbert was the booker in Continental at the time, and, and Paul Heyman was his assistant. And Gilbert wanted to bring him in as a heel, you know, at Heyman's suggestion, because Paul was lobbying for it so much. And it was literally, I mean, they played, the, they played the tape saying, next week, Brian Pillman debuts. And in the end, Eddie Gilbert and Paul Heyman end up having a blow-up with David Woods, who was the owner of Continental at the time based on the fact that Eddie Gilbert had said that he was injured and and, and wasn't working in the the territory at the time. But then he went and worked a shot at Kansas City. And, you know, the way that that wrestling is usually does travel. And, unfortunately, Eddie Gilbert got approached with, what the hell, you know, you told me that you were injured and and you can't work on our cards, but you worked a shot in Kansas City. And, you know, the way that Eddie Gilbert was, you know, it it quickly turned to a blow-up if you questioned him. So he stormed out. Heyman went with him out of loyalty. And Brian Pillman, who was one week away from, from joining Continental, he just he gets kind of left on the shelf, and he's got nothing going on. He didn't want to go back to Stampede at that point. And so he, he was just kind of waiting and looking around. And like you say, it was, it was Kim Wood, who was, again, so important in his life, kind of making contact with Jim Ross. And Jim Ross, being a huge football fan, loved the idea of this young former Cincinnati Bengal that looked like that, who, who was that good, that fast. I mean, that just seemed like a a natural. And I mean, it wasn't easy for Brian to get in the sense of, you know, WCW was always kind of a chaotic place and there was was always regime changes and, you know, he he had to deal with that before he even got there. Um, But when he finally did, I mean, he he came in in a decent spot. But I don't think there was was certainly no plans for him. But, uh, you know, again, through regime changes and and kind of a little bit of luck, uh, he did get a chance. And he did get a chance. and, And this is pretty much what Brian would always do he would he would take an he would be given an inch and he'd take the mile absolutely
0: one of the things I remember, too, when Brian came in with one of his earlier opponents was a fellow Stampede alumnus, Mike Shaw, a.k.a. Muckin and Singh. And at the time, he was working the heel gimmick of Norman the Lunatic. So even in his first really big feud, uh, he had a little familiarity because he did with, work with uh, both Muckin and then even Gary Albright and other guys that were part of that consortium uh, Karachi Vice and Stampede.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I think that was kind of helpful, but I think it was kind of the thing with, uh, with Mark and the you know, slash Norman the Lunatic, was that he was kind of the bridge between two eras in, in the sense of there's an interim committee when Brian came in and then Flair took over. And Flair took over as the booker, you know, just after the bash in 89. And when he took over, he was like looking at, you know, the rush and was like, why have we got Brian Pillman? With Norman the lunatic, and that's nothing against Norman. It's just one of those things where he was—he was always going to be timecast as a lower card, mid card guy with that gimmick. Whereas Brian just had a hell of a lot of upside, and he was just not really, not really being given a chance to shine. And flare. and you know, he, he was lucky again. It was—it was the ability to get over off the field. But everybody on the new committee likes him, and they didn't know—they didn't want to see him sitting there toiling away, you know, when he could be useful at a time when they needed someone like him
0: in front of his first really, really major feuds. And, uh, yeah, a guy that had, you know, in his time, he's kind of made peace with the world. But in his era, he was one of the biggest stars. He was one of the biggest built. He had the million-dollar body, but he also had the uh, the, the crap attitude at times. Uh, he, he You know, love him or hate him, Lex Luger was Brian's first great big, uh, you know, shining moment, you know, that got cut short, of course, uh, which was just a shame because the way he came in Those first couple of times uh, when he ended up engaging in Luger and starting that feud, there was some really good television there. And I I think that, uh, you know, for what it's worth, uh, they worked. It was a a decent feud that should have had a little more legs to it, I thought.
1: Well, the grand irony with that is that eventually he couldn't stand Lex. But at the same time, while he couldn't stand him, Brian was one of the few who was able to get that kind of performance out of Lex. I mean, at the time, I mean, the, the guys that had great matches with Lex I mean, there are few and far between, and we're talking like all-time greats here. We're talking Flair and Steamboat and guys like that. Like, It wasn't like Lugo was tearing up regularly, and, uh, and, and nor did he after he moved away from those three people. Um, but again, I think okay, it speaks to how quick Brian learned and how good Brian was so early that he was able to navigate and again, just sit back, think, figure it out. What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? And how can I play to him in a way that will help me, help him? And, uh, and just benefit everybody. And yeah, it did get cut short because ultimately it wasn't the plan. You know, Luger was seen as a top guy and, and Brian wasn't at that point. Um, and who knows, maybe it a little early for Brian. But at the same time, I, I think if the follow-up had been there, I think it would have worked. But the follow-up just wasn't there. And, and, and that was, again, another regime change, kind of screwing Brian over.
0: And we'll talk a little bit about the regime change, but also uh, Brian ended up eventually finding himself uh, working tags. And uh, a good period of time he spent with Minnesota guy Tom Zink. And they they had a really good feud, I thought. There was some a good series of matches with Jim Cornette's Midnight Express. And when you read a little bit more about it, it sounded like... They uh, wanted to do a lot more with uh, the angle with the Midnight Express uh, and a little more with Brian to even elevate him a little bit more and reading about some of the uh, perspective ideas that Cornette had and and some of the booking guys had that uh, didn't come to pass, of course, because it was the SS Titanic WCW that just didn't know how to keep, you know, keep keep a keep a they couldn't order lunch, uh, uh, let alone uh, get a booking sheet. But uh, I guess uh, working the tag teams with with, with Zinc, I mean, they really had more ideas that just didn't, that just basically died on the cutting room floor. I mean, that really could have elevated uh, Pillman into more of that direction where he would have been taken even more serious as a, as a big time player in a in a World Championship series or a cycle.
1: Yeah, and and, and this is where the, the the pattern really starts to develop with Brian. Unfortunately, this is where we really start to see the the habit that the business and WCW seem to have of Tillman's got something that we could really do, and we could really do with making a new guy, and they just would not do it. Even though the idea was there, there was always some kind of stupid, petty political reason. Whether it was a, a thing where they just didn't think Brian would was, was, wipe know, right that spot, or whether it was something where the person he was working with, which was the case in the Midnight's, uh, and would be later on as well, uh, you know, especially with Zenk, you know, Zenk, who was his partner, but was on the opposite side politically of the next book of Ole Anderson. And as a result, the team gets you know, beaten, broken up, disposed of, kind of put together in a sloppy way, you know, back again at the end of the year, but not in a way that meant anything. And, and as a result, Brian's just floundering. by, by the time you know mid nineteen ninety comes along, he, uh, again, it's kind of one of those perfect things in the book where it kind of gets described. He went from being. You know, Ric Flair's personal protege on screen, and a guy who was going to work for Flair. So all of a sudden, he's working with guys like The Iron Sheik, who really had no business on the major league stage as a wrestler. In 1990, he was he played out. You know, he had nothing to to provide, nothing to give. And and, and Tommy Rich in 19 yeah you know, in 1990, who wasn't over at all, was being pushed stronger than Pillman was when, when Oli came in. And you know that that was the you know, the knock on effect of things like those great plans. Yeah, falling
0: through. Yeah, that was kind of Oli's, like uh, bringing in some of the guys that he had uh, struck pay dirt with earlier in the Georgia Championship stuff. But the reality was, it was a generation that was starting to, uh, uh, I guess, give way to these guys, these young stars like like Brian Pillman that were coming up. And Oli, of course, being Oli, just didn't really want to uh, let go of that of of the past to a degree. And you know, for Brian, for him, again. This is a guy, you know, he ended up with the tag team with the Z, with Tom Zink, the Z-Man. He ended up trying something that, I mean, that ended up working in the long run by getting involved and, and really putting the word out about guys like Jushin Liger and some of the guys that uh, would have been a part of a stellar light heavyweight division for all intents and purposes, started out great with those series of matches with 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 Brian and Jushin, but again with WCW, we ended up having guys like Ricky, you know, Ricky Morton. You know, he's a great worker, but you never remember him in a light heavyweight title mix. It was a tag team guy. They basically kind of just made it and also ran after a while. I mean, a couple of good guys in the lightweight division, but it seemed like it came out big and then they just lost it, lost focus on it, uh, and that was a shame too early on. And thankfully, they were able to get. Track- action with the the cruiserweight division later on with with wcw in the 90s
1: yeah and that's you know, it's, a, it's the story of what could have been which is unfortunately the pattern with brian but him, him and liger the matches they did have at christmas weekend in 91 and, and the match they had a super bowl that everybody remembers was just so unbelievably tremendous and 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 for what, in the end, you know, it really didn't, it really didn't get anywhere or me anything. And even when WCW did bring back the, the cruiserweight division, which was about a year after Brian had actually pitched to bring it back in '95, if you remember, it wasn't until Mysterio got there, which was actually kind of similar to the way that Liger came in, where you know, they've got, you know, they've got guys, you know, Malenko, Malenko was struggling to get over in 1996, people forget, you know, early 96, Malenko's, he's there, he's good, but he's trying to find his way to really connect to the audience, and it wasn't until the perfect contrast came along with the Ray that I think that the, the, the idea of the image of the Cruiserweight division really picked up, and Brian could see that that could happen with Liger. Liger could have been the Mysterio, you know, four years earlier, in a sense, in terms of, if we build it around him, then that means that Brian will be the one that works with him forever, because that will be the introduction and, of course, Brian would then have a spot away from the guys like, you know, Wyndham, Luger, Flair, Sting, that, that the book would always protect. And, and he would be the star, if, if not the star, he would be one of the top two stars in a completely segregated division. But it, it, it didn't come to pass because, like so many things, WCW just had a knack for throwing the ball.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Liam O'Rourke, uh, author of Crazy Like a Fox, the definitive chronicle of Brian Pillman. And, you know, again, Brian uh, ended up uh, going heel. 1992 was a big year for him in the later part of the year because you mentioned Barry Windham. Well, Barry was kind of in the mix of, of Brian's uh, heel turn and later transition into what became the tag team with Steve Austin and the Hollywood Blondes. And you want to talk about something. And there you go. Another thing that was uh, cut at the knees a little too early. But yeah, the seeds were planted in 92, uh, late 92 and into 93 for what became another great gimmick. Uh, another thing that uh, I really enjoyed. I I love that the way they got into it. I love the brush for greatness tour. I thought uh, they, they, they they dropped it too early on 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 the Hollywood Blondes. But again, it's WCW. This just seems like standard working order for them. Unfortunately,
1: yeah. And, and that was another thing too, where you yeah, know was being given a lemon and making lemonade out of it. And and I mean, and what great lemonade, you know? I mean, who 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 better could you have to to be just thrown together with than a guy like Steve Austin? As good as he was, you know, uh, with the engine that he had and the motor he had, who was as impressionable as he was, you know? I mean, yeah, it, it's been said by Austin himself that Pillman was the leader of the team. But think about the, a guy like Austin who was so hungry and, and was so driven in his own right that he would kind of put his hands in, and kind of believe in the vision that Brian had for, for what the team could be. I mean, Austin was vehement about not being in the team to begin with. I mean, he was getting right up in Watts's space and right up in Dusty's space Thinking that he was being messed with. I mean, he did not like it at all. Um, and so, for it to turn from that to what it ended up being, which is he's following Brian's advice and it's working. I mean, think about how, how, just how dynamic that, that, that rare chemistry was between those two guys to get them to, to mesh that well when they're, they're their beginning and their, for, you know, their formation really wasn't something they wanted it was something they were slapped with because the bookers had nothing for them and nothing for the tank division and it was just it was very lazy i mean it's the thing with wcw everything will be so lazy you kind of see it in the in the book it's the pattern you know it's like even angles that they consider a high priority they're lazy with and they're not good storytellers you know and it was only it was dusty you know bishop was the same he was even he wasn't really the head booker; he was the guy that oversaw everything he was never someone that could really, you know, tell a story start to finish and see if through to its conclusion. I mean, and, and you see it, you know, with the Blondes perfectly, Unfortunately, where as good as they do and as exciting as their rise is, they have as unceremonious and 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 tragic and, and ugly a demise as a team where they just get downplayed. It's almost like it's not a big deal by the time they break up, and and, and, and you just lose it. You, know, you you see magic and it just slips through your fingers.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Brian could have very much ended up lost in the shuffle because the intent and purposes was to push Steve Austin at the time which led to the uh, United States title uh, by by Starcade yeah. and uh, the thing was with, with Brian you know as you know 94 got into 95 you know he was just kind of he was in he was in orbit, but he didn't have anything. And we're going to get into, about you know, he turns in, he turns heel again, joins the four horsemen. And this was the seeds planted for the loose cannon character. But before Brian got to really start to uh, show his true talents and all of the things that we've talked about that made him such a uh, an intriguing, you know, mentally just brilliant man. They gave him something not so brilliant. They gave him uh, an ill fated (laughs) California Pretty Boy gimmick, where, uh, and that damn song still, and I was reading that book, and reading your book, I had that damn song, Blondes Have More Fun, in my head, and uh, watching Brian. It seems so forced. He just was trying to he was trying to make the best of it, but you just didn't see his heart was into it. Again, they had one good thing out of it. I guess it's not really attributed to the gimmick. Was he got to be on the first Nitro against Jushin Liger? But ooh, that California Hollywood Brian thing. I like the Hollywood blondes Brian, but that California Brian thing was like 15 years outdated. It was cheesy. It could have been in Memphis on one of those videos and it would have been over, but not now.
1: Well, well, I mean, like you say there, it, it was something that could have been out of Memphis. And, and, and the, the man behind it was Jimmy Hart. Yep. He, was, he was as Memphis as they come in terms of his, his indoctrination to the business. So, I mean, that, that sums it up right there. But not a knock on Jimmy, because Jimmy had good intentions with Brian, oh, yeah. And not a lot of people did at that point. So, um, I mean, he, yeah, he was doing what he could. I mean, he was just so, he was so dejected and so annoyed that they broke up the bonds when it was something that was obviously a winner. Oh, yeah. For him to get nothing in return. And I mean, yeah, what are you going to do? It's like, it, it, as, as, as awful as it was to, to try and get to Brian's head at the time, it had to be something where it's like, okay, it's this, or it's just losing to the honky tonk man. It's this, or it's, it's me just wrestling Jean-Paul Levesque and Bobby, Eaton, both of whom are good, but neither of them are a priority in the slightest at this point. So he, I mean, he probably thought as you know what, if, even if it just gets me a, a shred, a smidgen closer to being prioritized, I'll take it because then when I get there, maybe I can change. You know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's all you can really say because he, I mean, he was floundering there for a while and it was actually kind of, to me, it's the perfect contrast of like, he was this one dimensional, forced to be a one dimensional guy, but he was ready to be bursting out the scenes of this four dimensional character that, that he worked on and cultivated on. And it's kind of, I think the thing with the California Brian thing that may have been one of the moments and one of the real things where he just realized, you know what, if I do, because I mean, think of this, we, we mentioned earlier about the guys today who, who just, you know, they are what they are and they just stay that way. A lot of guys today would be California Brian, they stay California Brian until they get fired. But yeah. he didn't, yeah, he didn't want that. And, and, and he knew that he had to be himself. He figured out, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to give me these guys who are on top, They're not creative geniuses, regardless of what they say. At that time, I mean, it was pretty clear, man. I mean, Vince was coming up with nothing in 95. Um, WCW was worse somehow. But no one was coming up with anything great in in the Big 2. And it was, was, you know, Brian figured out, you know what, if anyone's going to come up with something brilliant, it better be me because they're not going to.
0: And boy, did he come together with this creation of the loose cannon character? We'll get, touch on a little bit uh, here as we're getting close to the top of the hour. But I want to talk a little bit about this loose cannon character. I mean, he brought. I mean, Nitro needed a little bang. Nitro was this new show. Nitro was coming off just getting going, and boy, Brian found this character, the culmination of this loose cannon character. I mean, the things that went along with it. I mean, he started off in the early days with, uh, of course, the uh, the incident with Bobby Heenan where he went behind him and touched. Him. And of course, he didn't, didn't want to have any of the guys touching him. He was uh, also doing things early on in, in ECW. He had the hotline. He also, he, la- he got Bischoff to believe in this stuff. He got Bischoff into believing in an idea where he would, uh, where Brian would be in, you know, in, in the storyline, leaving the company, going up to ECW, doing his thing, you and then doing these other things that he had a whole bunch of ideas. When you read this book, you'll find out about these ideas, some of which never got to come, not, not come to pass, but he had so many good ideas. This was a character that he was just, it seemed like he was chomping at the bit to do. And when he went into it, he really went into it, whether it was in, in public, you know, or at these, these events and, and at the pro wrestling and on TV. So the Brian, Brian had so many different angles to explore. And in your book, you really get to give the the reader really good insight into uh, the. We talked about some of the, the the thinking that Brian did, but we really get to find out just how he made this character, how he was so smart and and working every side he could possibly work. And again, timing, poor guy. It's just like he, as soon as he was on top of the world again. It's like the old body, the injuries, the the the, the poor yeah. car accident. It's like, man, your book covers just that metamorphosis of Brian Hollywood, California Brian, into this <laughs> cere- the real cerebral assassin of sorts. I mean, he's not big like Triple H, but he can mentally deconstruct you before a first punch will be thrown, and that's the the essence of the loose cannon that ran muck in you know in the three companies uh, you know in from '95 to '96.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the stuff that I—I I mean, I was dying to write about because that's the stuff that I knew. You know, I'd spoken to a lot of people, you know, before the book really started getting going about the things that he was doing. And it's like people, you know, again, it's one of those things where people have that inclination to, you know, summarize something that happened in a few short sound bites because it's just the nature of life, you know. Um, you know, you know, live the character. He was unpredictable. Blah blah blah. It's like no, that's not the story to me. The story is this guy who was just filled with all these ideas and, and and the things he wanted to do and the the books he read, the movies he watched, the influences he had, you know, it, it's all there and it's, it's, it's really fun to kind of lay it all out and see that timeline of, of how he becomes, what he becomes. And yeah, like you said, I mean, there's so much that happens, it's so involved, it's so deep that, uh, that I think that it really kind of brings home just how tragic that Humvee wreck is because... He, he did work so hard, I and mean, there was brilliance there. There was genius there. Um, it, it, it's a genius that is so rare that no one's ever been able to duplicate it since, um, in my opinion. I, I don't think that anyone's come close. I think that they tried to do something similar with CM Punk, and I think it felt you know, for exciting for a brief period, but it didn't have the legs, and it didn't feel like, in my opinion, it didn't feel like it, it could have been what Brian was, not, let alone what Brian could have been. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. uh, and man, that homie wreck, it's, you know, it, when you read it in the book and you kind of read the, de- the, the detail about the scope of the damage, I mean, it's unbelievable. And it, just, it's, it is it's heartbreaking. It really is.
0: And another thing I found so, so heartbreaking too here as we're getting ready to close is in the book you cover it so well, uh, for better, for worse, because it, it needed to get covered, is Brian really, I mean, his, his personal life was, was, was such a at times a, a tabloid but then became such a sad song considering with his passing and and just what really happened to his kids and his yeah. his widow at the time and, and and in your book you really delve into this and you really give an honest as honest you can Uh, description of of just how much uh, struggle happened, how much meddling happened. I mean, there was a lot of these great benefit shows that were going on. There's a lot of details about uh, Brian's Widow that you can read, the listener can read here today and decide for themselves. But boy, what a situation for Brian. And now that had ripple effects Brian's death and just the dysfunction before had such ripple effects on all of the kids, uh, right after the death. And, you know, and it's so nice when I'm reading the end of this book to know that, you know, there's another pillman in training to get into wrestling, but it seems like this kid saw so much in his time dealing with all this dysfunction that he, through his own dysfunction, got his head screwed on straight.
1: Yeah. And that's to me. I mean, Honestly, I mean, it's not the kind of harp on me what what feels kind of, like you said, the tabloid is a great thing. But, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on at the end of his life that's just terrifying. And i glad I'm not saying this to be, you know, kind of um, sensationalist or anything like that. But, I mean, it was it was really, it was genuinely depressing to write the last three months of his life and this stuff afterwards because I, I could hear people's people relaying these stories to me in my head as I'm writing it and just hearing the way their voices crack and hearing the way they're, you know, I mean, it's a sad, it's a very sad deal. His it, it, marriage was falling apart in, in a really, really bad way. There's a lot of things that were going on in his personal life that, that we, you know, it, it's 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 horrible. To, it's horrible to, to to know, but it's the fact. It's what happened. You know, there's no point shying away from it because there, there are lessons to be learned. And you can ignore it, you can repeat it, or, or, or you can do what Brian Jr. did, which was learn from it and be a better version of himself. And and I was it's funny because I was talking to Mike Johnson, from the, the Insider. Um, yesterday and he said that you know, he thought it was a bit of a gamble to not end talking about the tribute shows that Les Thatcher did, which we mentioned before because that to, you know, to, to the reader would be the easy thing to do in a sense of you know, the, the business comes together and, and the business actually shows that it can be good and they do it because of the reverence of the person that Brian was yeah, that's, that's the happy ending you know, in, in some sense, but to me the, other, the, the impact of what happens of his death needs to be told because as bad as it is and as like I said we go into it it's not it's not a pretty story but at the same time I really genuinely think that Brian Jr and Brittany being resilient enough to get through that and become better versions of themselves and, and get to a situation now where you know, they do have the ability to take their life in a positive direction they, I think they deserve to have that be the, the happy ending because that is the happiest ending of all. It's the fact that, you know, because ultimately, I mean, and, and several people said this to me, the one thing that Brian in his life would not have wanted if he died was for the kids to be messed up. You know, regardless of what happened with, the, with his wife or uh, on the female side of things, the kids were his top priority. He really loved and cherished the kids. And so for, for the kids to really hit the short end of the stick for so many years... It had to be put in because ultimately, I mean, like you say, they, they, they overcame it in true pill and fashion. And that's where the, the guts of their father really shows is they were not going to just, I mean, because so many people in that situation, they could have, they could have curled up in a ball, they could have let it defeat them. They could have fallen victim to the same vices that have overcome so many people. And they didn't, they chose not to, they chose better. And to me, that's, that's the happy ending. and It's the happy ending that both of them deserve.
0: And it's the ultimate happy ending to the end of our conversation today. I want to give you a, a big thank you, Liam O'Rourke. The book, it's a page-turner. I i think I'm going to be reading this a few more times here just because.
1: I, was to say, I want to thank you because I, when you told me that you thought the book was brilliant, I mean, that means a lot. And I, I really do appreciate your, your, your feedback, and I appreciate the time talking to you today because it's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's been great uh, being able to share such memories and, and be able to uh, plug your book because I really enjoyed it. And where can listeners find your book before we uh, we go our separate ways today?
1: Sure. Uh, the best place to get the book is Amazon. I mean, no matter where you are in the world, there's always uh, access to Amazon. So that seems like the most uh, logical place. I know that Barnes & Noble have, have got it, but uh, I, I would always point towards Amazon just for the ease of access. Uh, no matter where you are, if you're interested and you just want to talk Pilmer in general, and, you, and you, or you want to let me know what you think of the book, I'm on Twitter at Liam 86 as well, so you can catch me there. And just kind of play a little role reversal, Glenn, before we we do
0: uh, part ways. I want to ask your favorite chapter of the book. My favorite chapter of the book. Oh yeah. my! You know what? There I. God, this is a tough one because I really did like, I, I really like reading, uh, I, I really enjoyed reading this stuff about his life and, you know, the NFL and college. I mean, I love the wrestling stuff too, but, you know, to read about, you know, his friendship with John Harbaugh and how that friendship lasted and how some of the other guys and then dealing with guys in the NFL, like the incident with Anthony Munoz dealing with uh, uh, the rather oh, mellow yeah. Munoz. I mean, that <laughs> stuff is so good. And of course, the conception of the, of the loose cannon, and just Reading, I mean, the, some of the chapters bleed into one another, of course, because the story goes, I, I love reading just the way he cultivated things and just the way he was so smart about this business that he was getting into. It was almost like he was doing a second college for this profession, the way he, he yeah. would he would be such a student of it and the way he would go for, you know, sit under the learning trees of legends and, and writers and, and, and the like. So that to me, that was the ultimate and, and that was all it's carried with me. You know, after you, you read a book, you, there's a few things that you remember very well, but just that that part alone is one of the things that really I, I carried out of the book. It, it, brilliant, like I said.
1: Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, I, I, like I say, it's, a, it's, it's obviously it's very gratifying after spending two years on something like that, to hear people enjoying it. And, uh, and I think that Kim Wood said it best, you know, in the book when he talks about, you know, Brian's attitude, which was you know, no matter what people do to get better – It doesn't hurt no matter what for a guy like Brian to have as academic and as studious an approach as possible to the business and treat it like it was a college course because at that point, nobody else was going to do that.
0: No, not at all. Well, our time is up uh, here, Liam O'Rourke. Love to have you back on sometime down the line. Now We can talk about Pillman. We can talk about all kinds of different wrestling, whatever you fancy, but it is a wonderful thing. Our first international interview here, and I, I think it went well.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was a real pleasure, Glenn. Thank you again for having me.
0: For Liam O'Rourke, I'm Glenn Broggett. This is Rasslin' Memories.